Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. A Southgate, Michigan newspaper reported last month that a missing Apple Watch was returned to its owner. Not much newsworthy about that apart from how it all came about. A guilty conscience and the unit's GPS function. The watch's owner reported it was missing after contractors had been working in his basement. Using the locator function, he was able to track its general location to a corner in Dearborn. The police officer assigned to the case talked with the head of the work crew, who said one of his workers had indeed taken the watch, but then, pressured by a guilty conscience, handed the watch over to him. Evidently not plagued with a similar conscience, he tried to convince the officer that the owner had just not picked it up yet. The officer then took possession of the watch and returned it to its rightful owner. Just last week, an Israeli man returned an ancient Roman ballista stone to the museum he stole it from 15 years ago. The 2,000-year-old stone was originally discovered during excavations outside of Jerusalem. About the size and shape of a bowling ball, ballista stones were fired from a giant crossbow-looking sort of catapult. This one was especially valuable because it's likely one of the stones used by Roman soldiers during the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD. The thief was cleaning his home for the Passover when he came across the ill-gotten rock. The unnamed man decided to unburden his guilty conscience on Facebook, fearing the current pandemic was going to lead to the end of the world and was afraid of what would be waiting for him on the other side. The time has come, he wrote, to clear my conscience. It feels like the end of the world is near. The Israeli Antiquities Authority got word of his post, and with the help of a middleman, the stone was returned. We all have things we've done in our lives we're not proud of. If you ask me for my list, I'd have to ask you, how much time do you have? Jesus' disciples were no different, and they would all suffer from their own guilty consciences in the days to come. The Lord had gathered his disciples together in a borrowed room to celebrate the Passover meal. None of them would ever have imagined that we'd be talking about it and remembering it tonight, or that they would never share it with him again. The men had been drawn from many different walks of life. Over the past three and a half years, they'd experienced delusions of greatness and faced the reality of despair. They'd argued and questioned and scratched their heads. But through it all, they'd grown to love and respect Jesus. He was their friend, their teacher, their rabbi, and most of all, their Lord. Yet in the next 24 hours, they would desert him and deny him. One of them would betray him. Still, he would never stop loving them. We come together tonight to remember that meal and that rabbi and those followers. They come together for the Seder meal a highlight of Passover week. The Passover festival had been celebrated for centuries before Jesus came on scene. It commemorated that time when the Jews were in bondage to Egypt. It comes from the story of Moses bringing the word of God to Pharaoh, let my people go. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened. The Lord had visited nine plagues on Egypt. The Passover marked the tenth and final one. To every house that was not protected by the blood of consecrated lambs, lambs set aside for the Passover meal, the Lord struck down the firstborn sons. On the other hand, the Lord caused the angel of death to pass over houses marked with the blood of the lamb. 
The season of Passover is a time for Jews around the world to remember God's power and mercy on their behalf that night. The meal that accompanies the celebration is a reminder to the Jews of the suffering of their forefathers and the awesome power of God's deliverance. God commanded the people to remember the night of their deliverance with a special ritual done in strict accordance with his instructions, and this was the occasion of the gathering in the upper room. Like so many of the Old Testament rituals, everything in the meal was symbolic, a foreshadowing of the fulfillment to come. It was likely this traditional Seder meal was what Jesus and his disciples were observing. But then, after the meal, Jesus introduced a momentous alteration. He took some of the remaining bread, and he blessed it and broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Wondering at his language, the disciples ate the bread. Then he took the cup of Passover wine in front of him. Again he offered thanks and passed the chalice among them, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. It was to be his legacy, a lasting meal, a last will and testament that was to be observed and embraced until the day he returns. We celebrate it today as the Lord's Supper, or Holy Communion. Still, even some believers wonder at his language. Up until the time of the Reformation, people took Jesus at his word, allowing God to be God, understanding that nothing is impossible with God. And Martin Luther stood on that truth. But some of the other reformers allowed reason to rule. How could that be, they wondered. It must just be symbolic. Even today, many churches interpret is as a metaphor for represents. They take the same approach to Jesus' words regarding the wine. Take and drink. This is my blood shed for you. Lutherans and some other mainline denominations believe that Christ instituted something sacramental that night. A sacrament is something commanded by God, this do, that combines God's word with an earthly element. In this case, bread and wine. That's much more than just a remembrance meal. God's forgiveness comes to us through his means of grace, that is, his holy word and his two sacraments, baptism and holy communion. In both of them, God comes to us and is present with us in a very personal way. We don't understand the mechanics of it all, maybe, but we accept it, just as the Apostle Paul did when he wrote in 1 Corinthians, explaining Christ's holy suppers to new believers in Corinth, the bread we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Clearly the one who said, let there be light, and there was light, is more than capable of being present with us in this sacrament, in, with, and under the bread and wine. Jesus would be arrested later that very night, this night, forced to suffer through a mock trial, and be crucified the next day, what we call Good Friday. Just as the Jews used the elements of the Seder to retell their story, the celebration of Holy Communion tells ours. Jesus' words go to the very heart of Christianity. In Old Testament worship, when the flesh and blood of the sacrificed animals was offered up for forgiveness, so Jesus was to be the Paschal or Passover lamb offered in a final, once and for all time sacrifice for sin, the fulfillment of the shadow. 
In this new covenant, God was offering man a fresh contract or agreement in Jesus. His sacrifice on the cross would bring liberation, not from Egypt this time, but from slavery to sin and guilt for all the time. And all we have to do to fulfill our part is believe it. It's God's gift to you until the day you meet in person, because the supper also foreshadowed the messianic banquet that he would share with his followers in the future kingdom in heaven. It wouldn't be until later that the disciples could look back and finally comprehend what Jesus was saying and doing on our behalf. It was something we all need. I suspect that his disciples gathered in that upper room make up a fair representation of the guilt and sin brought together in worship tonight. Matthew was there. Now here was a man who had a brilliant analytical mind, but before Jesus called him into service, he'd been wasting it in service to himself. He was a former tax collector, a man who was in bed with the Romans. It was his responsibility to extract tax money from his brothers, money that went to support the very institution that was enslaving the Jews. Matthew's mind was like an adding machine. His God had been the dollar sign. He reminds us just how far many of us are willing to go to advance our own personal ambition. Any taxes he managed to collect beyond what Rome demanded went right into his pocket. But when Matthew answered the call of Jesus, he did a 180. Now he was using those God-given talents to serve the Master. His story is a reminder that we're all given gifts from God. Gifts that, if used rightly, can enhance humanity, make the world a better place by virtue of our having been in it. It's in Matthew's Gospel that we find Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and a majority of his parables. The Gospel, according to Matthew, has changed the world like few writings have ever done. Maybe we see ourselves in James and John. They remind us of the pride and ego in us all. It was their mother who went to Jesus for them, asking, When you come into your kingdom, grant that these two sons of mine may sit at your right and your left. Even on this last night together, Jesus' disciples argued over which of them was to be considered greatest. James and John remind us that if we're to follow Jesus, we'd better check our egos at the door. Jesus told the disciples to calm their argument over their own greatness, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. We must decrease if Jesus is to increase. We can't allow our egos to block people's view of him. He who would be greatest must first of all be a servant. Maybe we see ourselves in Nathaniel. He reminds us of the prejudices in our land and in our hearts. When he first heard about Jesus, he said, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? In how many ways do we echo that same sentiment, even today in our enlightened age? Now personalize it. Can any good thing come out of fill in the blank with a city or a neighborhood or a country? How about can any good thing come out of that family or my family? Nathaniel reminds us that before we can free others, we'll need to free ourselves rid ourselves of the prejudices that separate us from others. Thomas is an easy one. We can all see a bit of ourselves in Thomas. He's the one from Missouri who answers everything with the words, show me. Like Thomas, we too long for proof, something tangible we can cling to when our faith and hope in God begins to fail.
For a long time, we lived in what was being called a post-modern prove-it-to-me age. These days, people are saying post-Christian. Thomas' story reminds us that resurrection faith is not something that can be wrapped up neatly and tied with a bow. The faith that connects us to the salvation and the gifts of forgiveness and new life is such an awesome thing. We can only say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Then there's Simon, the zealot. They were a political faction of Jews who believed that freedom from Roman rule should be won at any and all costs. Their passion burned all the way from hot to hatred. They were more than willing to commit murder and mayhem to accomplish their goal. Simon reminds us that anger is an emotion we all succumb to. And he reminds us that despite how we might feel about our own adversaries, Jesus said, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. Then there's Andrew. He was the one who brought his brother Simon Peter to Jesus, but he never gets the notoriety. He's always living under the shadow of his brother. He never breaks into the inner circle comprised of Peter, James, and John, although he brought them all to Jesus, and he'd been fishing with them since they were boys. I guess Andrew reminds us that if we are to be an effective follower of Jesus, then we better not live for the limelight. In fact, the fruit of much of the work we do may never blossom until long after we're gone. It's true that the majority of those who are truly devoted to the kingdom service rarely get the recognition they deserve. In fact, there will be times when we must defer to others in humility for the sake of unity. And then there was Judas. Anybody want to claim him? Probably not but only because we're not willing to look closely enough. You know, one of the theories about why Judas betrayed Jesus the way he did is that he was just impatient. He believed that Jesus really did have the power to usher in the kingdom of God. He just didn't understand why he was waiting so long. The theory is that Judas simply contrived a situation in which Jesus would be forced to reveal his power. He arranged for the arrest of our Lord so that finally the religious leaders would see and believe. According to this theory, Judas reminds us to remember that our schedule is not always God's schedule and that our means are not always His. We see from the perspective of the here and now, the immediate. God sees from the perspective of eternity. God knows. We only think that we do. The big fisherman was there, Simon Peter, impetuous Peter, the one who always leaped before he looked. When Jesus told the disciples they would all fall away, it was Peter who vowed, Even if all fall away in account of you, I never will. Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. But Peter did fall away. That very night, he denied Jesus not once, but three times. He reminds us that to follow Jesus, we must first count the costs. Whichever disciple you most identify with, we were all there that night. Just as we come to the table of our Lord together, in spite of our differences, we gather confessing a common faith in our Lord Jesus, and a common failing. Christ's Supper is for sinners, all those who fall far short of the person we know we should be. Through this sacramental meal, we find forgiveness and strength for the task to which we've been called. God always supplies us with the right means to meet his end.
And through this meal and your heartfelt confession, for Jesus' sake, God removes the guilt that weighs so heavy on our hearts. He invites us to that same table with the disciples, where he says to us, This is my body which is given for you. This cup that is poured out is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus' lifeblood has become our lifeblood, because in his shed blood we have forgiveness, and in forgiveness we have new life. God continues to love us unconditionally, and we are truly blessed. Amen. And now may that very peace of, special peace of God that passes all understanding keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.